This is not the media. This is hell. What the hell was that music you were playing, Alex? Monica Vetterland and Bill Evans. You got a problem with it? <laughs> no, I don't. It's pretty good. Bill Evans is really good. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz, putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, you can do it in many ways by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support, where you can find... All our merch, including the new This Is Hell medical face mask to protect you from the virus or tear gas or mace or whatever capitalism is throwing at us this week. While telling everybody how you feel about the virus, how you feel about police violence, how you feel about institutional racism. With the words, This Is Hell, splashed across your face. In fact, the brand new This Is Hell medical face mask is what the person who has our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins for having our favorite response. Producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, what is this week's question from hell? I gotta be honest, I'm having trouble think of, thinking of something real funny right now. <laughs> uh, give me the, by the end of the episode, and I'll uh, have one out posted. All right, so we'll have something a little bit later on from Alex. He'll be telling us the question from hell. We'll be sharing that later on today's show. Today, we're going to be talking to one of our very favorite guests, cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truth Out, Henry A. Giroux. Henry was scheduled to be on our show a couple of weeks ago. We've been doing these weekly Thursday reports from different past guests, contributors on our show about what's happening with the coronavirus, where they are. So we were going to have uh, Henry on a couple of weeks ago to tell us what the coronavirus is like in Canada. He lives in Hamilton, Ontario, so we we're going to get his angle on that. Then I got sick, and since then, a lot of stuff has happened. So we're going to be talking to Henry about racial violence here in the United States, about neoliberalism, of course, and about coronavirus. That's coming up in just a little bit. Don't forget, when Alex does post the question from hell, you can leave your response at our Facebook page, tweet it to us, or email it to us. Alex will have this week's question from hell in just a few moments after our guest. Here on This Is Hell, I've displayed a lot of grief over the comments of past guest Van Jones, who is now a CNN commentator and is the former special advisor on green jobs during the Obama administration. That worked out really well. Van was one of the Democratic Party regulars who was loudly telling everyone that we must support Joe Biden because despite Bernie Sanders beating Joe in every poll when it came to a head-to-head matchup against Donald Trump, we must support Joe Biden because Joe and his cast of seven sexual abuse accusers had a way better chance of beating Trump this November. Besides all of that socialism stuff Bernie was promising would never get done, Van was arguing, especially with Democrats in the House and Senate, who are opposed to things like, you know, universal health care, free college, abolishing student debt, all those things that would come in real handy right now during a global pandemic. But uh, if I'm going to give Van Jones grief, I should acknowledge when he does say something I agree with. And late Thursday night, he did just that after a day of peaceful protests had led to a night of less peaceful protests. Van Jones said on CNN, people are telling me they're tired of hashtags. They're tired 
of Van Jones saying we need a bipartisan solution. They're tired of people like me. They're tired of people saying over and over again that, you know, we're just basically one bill away, one election away from progress. It's not the racist white person who is the Ku Klux Klan that we have to worry about. It's the white liberal Hillary Clinton supporter walking her dog in Central Park who would tell you right now, I don't see race. Race is no big deal to me. I see us all as the same. I give to charities. But the minute she sees a black man who she does not respect or who she has a slight thought against, she weaponized race like she had been trained by the Aryan nation. A Klan's member could not have been better trained to pick up her phone and tell the police a black man, African-American man, come get him. So even the most liberal, well-intentioned white person has a virus in his or her brain that can be activated at an instant. So what you're seeing now is a curtain falling away, and those of us who have been burdened by this every minute, every second of our entire lives, are fragile right now. We are fragile right now. Yes, you're right, Van Jones. We are tired of hashtags and bipartisan solutions and concessions to fascists, like the way Democrats now use the term illegal immigrant which was a creation of the extreme far right. So thank you, Van Jones, for admitting that all of the political activism that you have promoted was a freaking dead end. I've also said very negative things about another person who was quoted saying something that is very poignant considering the events that are taking place across the United States over the last week. Yes, former Secretary of Defense during the Bush administration, Donald Rumsfeld, who is part of the conspiracy to lie to the United States and as much of the rest of the world as he could into war with Iraq, he made a bold statement endorsing looting. Rumsfeld was quoted saying, while no one condones looting, on the other hand, one can understand the pent-up feelings that may result from decades of repression and people who have had members of their families killed by that regime for them to be taking their feelings uh, out on that regime. And I don't think there's anyone in any of those pictures who wouldn't accept it as part of the price of getting from a repressed regime to freedom. Think what's happened in our cities when we've had riots and problems and looting. Stuff happens. Yes, Donald Rumsfeld supports looting because... When you loot, stuff happens. Not that you are going to hear that on Fox News. Of course, you may have seen that on Fox News. When Rumsfeld originally said it back in April 2003, less than a month after the invasion and occupation of Iraq, legitimizing any and all violence the U.S. caused as, in the end, it will all work out and be better because democracy. So thanks for your endorsement for looting as a political strategy. And from the reaction of the city of Minneapolis and charges of murder against police officer Derek Chauvin, Rumsfeld was correct. When you loot, when you threaten capitalism, stuff happens. Boots Riley, the genius behind the movie Sorry to Bother You, was who was on our show last year, has a long Twitter thread about capitalism and the role of the police that is outstanding, and you should check it out in its entirety at Boots Riley. Part of Boots' thread reads like this. You cannot have full employment under capitalism. Capitalism must have a certain percentage of unemployed people to exist. When unemployment rates lower past a certain point, you will see the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, etc. worry because it means that wages go up and stock values go down in real time. 
There must be an army of unemployed workers so that bosses can keep wages low by threatening workers with the idea of being replaced. The bigger that army is, the workers' supposed competition, the lower the wages are. And the point is to keep wages as low as they can. If there was full employment, workers could tell the boss, I want $75 an hour or I'm out, and the boss couldn't replace them. They'd have to give in to demands of workers without much organizing needed. Businesses must make money each year, more money each year than the last, so this wouldn't work. So capitalism needs an army of unemployed workers in order to exist. What do you call an army of unemployed workers? You call them hungry. They need to eat. And they don't have a job because capitalism needs them to be unemployed and desperate. That army of unemployed workers isn't going to just let themselves or their families starve and be homeless. They're going to go into illegal business. Hell, even many folks with legal jobs that don't pay enough will need to do this for supplemental income. All business, legal and illegal, uses violence to regulate itself. If a hotel next to offices of Twitter decided to make a golf course run through their Twitter offices... Jack would say, no, I have a deed. The deed only matters because there are men with guns, the police, who physically enforce it. During Prohibition, when liquor was illegal, you rob the liquor dude, gangsters come after you. You rob the liquor dude now, the police come after you. 20 years ago, when weed was illegal, you rob the weed dude, his friends come after you. Now you rob the weed dude, the police come after you. Same shit. Illegal business doesn't have the police or the courts on to regulate it like legal business does. You can't go to court and say, Your Honor, I was supposed to be buying a whole kilo of Coke. Clearly, this is half baking soda. I demand restitution. There's no zoning board to complain to. This block is only zoned for one cocaine vendor. If this guy wants to vend cocaine in the same area, he's going to have to get a special permit. That is, unless we can agree to stick to vending heroin. Well... Boots is right, and the police have total immunity in perpetrating any violence. In an op-ed last week by Patrick Giacomo and Anya Bidwell, attorneys at the Institute for Justice, they wrote, The Supreme Court created qualified immunity in 1982 with that novel invention. The court granted all government officials immunity for violating constitutional and civil rights unless the victims of those violations can show that the rights were clearly established. Although innocuous sounding, the clearly established test is a legal obstacle nearly impossible to overcome. It requires a victim to identify an earlier decision by the Supreme Court or a federal appeals court in the same jurisdiction, holding that precisely the same conduct under the same circumstances is illegal or unconstitutional. In other words, the official is immune. Whether the official's actions are unconstitutional, intentional, or malicious is irrelevant. To the test. So yeah, Derek Chauvin could get off scot-free because since 1992, and only since 1992, cops have had near-complete immunity to kill whoever they want, for any reason they want, whenever they want. And as the New York Times editorial board wrote last week, police officers don't face justice more often for a variety of reasons, from powerful police unions to the blue wall of silence to cowardly prosecutors to reluctant juries, but it is the Supreme Court that has enabled a culture of violence and abuse by eviscerating a vital civil rights law to provide police officers what in practice is nearly limitless immunity from prosecution for actions taken while on the job. The badge has become a get-out-of-jail-free card in far too many instances. In another op-ed in the Times last week, Philip V. McHarris, a writer and Ph.D. candidate at Yale, and Thenjui McHarris, a uh, leader in the Black 
and the movement for black lives laid out the solutions to the problems with police. They wrote the solution to ending police violence and cultivating a safer country lies in reducing the power of the police and their contact with the public. We can do that by reinvesting the $100 billion spent on policing nationwide in alternative emergency response programs, as protesters in Minneapolis have called for. City, state, and federal grants can also fund these programs. Municipalities can begin by changing policies or statutes so police officers never respond to certain kinds of emergencies, including ones that involve substance abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, mental health. Instead, healthcare workers or emergency response teams would handle those incidents. So if someone calls 911 to report a drug overdose, healthcare teams rush to the scene. The police wouldn't get involved. If a person calls 911 to complain about people who are homeless, Rapid response social workers would provide them with housing support and other resources. Conflict interrupters and restorative justice teams would mediate situations where no one's safety is being threatened. Community organizers, rather than police officers, would help manage responses to the pandemic. Ideally, people would have the option to call a different number than 911, say 727, to access various trained response teams. The good news is this is already happening. Violence interruption programs exist throughout the country. They're often led by people from the community who have experience navigating tricky situations. So, whether it's Van Jones, Donald Rumsfeld, Boots Riley, the editorial board at the Times, or attorneys at the Institute of Justice, Yale PhD candidates, or Black Lives Matter activists, They all seem to agree, agree. yeah, this is hell, but it can get better if we have the commitment and desire to make it better. Coming up, neoliberalism has a lot to do with the killing of George Floyd as well as the coronavirus pandemic. Alex will have this week's question from hell, and the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can find right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. When we want a clear reading of the impact that neoliberalism is having on our planet, we always turn to our next guest. Whether it's the racial violence that killed George Floyd or it's the violence to our environment that led to the global pandemic, you can count on it all going back to the cruel system of neoliberalism, returning to This Is Hell to Explain cultural critic writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truthout, Henry A. Giraud. Henry, how are you? Good. Chuck, how are you feeling? hope you're better. I, my stomach is better. I might be having a little bit of a relapse today, but it's feeling better. How are you feeling? Oh, I'm okay. I'm fine. So you never got coronavirus? Nothing like that? No, no, no. I, I, no, I can't get it because I have an, an autoimmune problem, so I have to be very careful. So are you being super careful staying indoors and doing all the precautions you need to do? Doing all the things I need to do, just reading and writing. (laughs) Excellent. And I've been reading your writing, so that's perfect. In an article at Counterpunch, Racial Domestic Terrorism and the Legacy of State Violence, you write that the sheer brutality of George Floyd's death at the hands of a viciously violent cop symbolizes the unadulterated racism of a culture that looks away in the face of police violence against black people, but also a society in which a form of racialized domestic terrorism has become normalized. You see this as terrorism. President Trump sees Antifa, not white supremacist groups who have a long history, a long record of hate crimes and violence in the United States, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. He views Antifa as terrorists, not the white supremacists. 
What does it reveal to you about the Trump administration or U.S. government governance more generally, even beyond the Trump administration, when the actions of police are not seen as terrorism, but anti-fascists are seen as terrorists? I mean, I think that what we see is what we've seen for the last four years with Trump. And I think that we see a guy who who basically wants to militarize every possible space that he can in order to concentrate power ruthlessly, not only in his own hands, but in the hands of basically his uh, racist, white supremacist, neo-fascist followers. I mean, Trump only knows the language of violence. He only knows the language of self-absorption and greed and self-interest. And he, he has a propensity to label anything, whether it's oppositional language, whether it's oppositional journalists, or whether it's people who are, who are basically suffering in the face of state violence as terrorists, when in fact he's the real terrorist. I mean, what he's doing is through his policies, whether they're on the border dealing with immigration, with uh, undocumented immigrants and putting children in cages, or whether he's telling the police to become uh, more thug-like in, in dealing, dealing with uh, people that they arrest, which of course is generally poor black and uh, brown people, or whether he's basically enacting policies that destroy the environment. I mean, these are all acts of violence. And I think that what we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what's the thread that connects all of these? Because we're not just talking about racism. We're talking about massive inequality. We're talking about the financialization of the economy. We're, we're talking about uh, xenophobia in a way unlike we've seen in a long time. We're talking about ultranationalism. I mean, these are all part of a, a, a basically what I call the logic of neoliberal fascism. I mean, it's, it's misery basically conjoined with terror, conjoined and connected with uh, what I call racial sorting. So during the Obama administration, we did hear a lot of Republicans, especially those on the far right, like the Fox News kind of far right. They were all complaining about the potential for totalitarianism, authoritarianism, even the potential for martial law under the Barack Obama administration. And now we hear President Trump calling for, as you were saying, a militarized response, not only to coronavirus, but also to what uh, the killing of George Floyd. What explains to you why the far right would be so afraid of martial law under one leadership and then call for martial law under another leadership? I mean, these are all diversions. I mean, any, anything the far right media says basically is the product of both uh, their own political and economic interests, which aligns with Trump's, and the fact that they're sycophants. I mean, this is pure propaganda. There's, there's, no, there's no journalism involved here. I mean, let's recognize what we're dealing with. We're dealing with cultural apparatuses that are basically in the, in, in, in the hands of the state, and they will say anything to basically defend their faceless leader. I, I mean, I, I don't take them se- I mean, I take them seriously in terms of certainly the influence that they have uh, in, in general in persuading people to, to believe in either hating themselves or acting according to interests that are not in their interest, or in fact, uh, you know, helping to consolidate the rule of and the power of the ruling elites. But, but I, I mean, they, uh, you know, to, to, to look for contradictions in what they say is to believe that at some level there's a logic there that simply has to be exposed. It isn't about logic, it's about power. I mean, these groups are basically nothing more than legitimating tools. They're disimagination machines. They sow, they sow divisiveness. They claim that the pandemic was a joke uh, designed to, to basically get, not get Trump reelected. Uh, when, they, when they look at terror, all they look at are 
people who basically are, are fighting for their lives in order to survive. I mean, everything is everything is Orwellian. I, I mean, this is this is the ministry of falsehoods. That's what it is. And I and I think I mean certainly we need to expose those lies. But I think what we really need to recognize is who they are. They're nothing more than adjuncts of really the consolidation of neoliberal fascist power. That's all they are. They can't be trusted. Uh, they should be condemned. Uh, and, and I think we need to fight for alternative medias like This Is Hell that basically expose them and, and, and point out options that are more viable and are willing to sort of understand the conditions that, uh, that give rise to them. I'm more concerned about where they come from and how they're funded and whose interests they serve than I am in looking at the contradictions that emerge from the discourse that comes out of their, their idiotic mouths every day. Uh, in your writing on the coronavirus, you write, the other plague among many is the rise of right-wing cultural apparatuses such as Fox News and Breitbart Media in which truth is treated with scorn. Science viewed as a hindrance and critical thought is maligned as fake news. This is a plague of willful ignorance and state-sanctioned civic illiteracy. Willful ignorance. Why would anyone will themselves into ignorance? And can that happen on both the right and the left? I mean, I think it can, it, it certainly can happen on both the right and the left. I mean, you know, there are no political guarantees just because one operates from a particular ideological position. But, but, it, but it seems to me that we do want to recognize that people on the left basically operate from the position that they're talking about social justice. They're talking about equality. I mean, they're talking about in some way making the world a better place. Some of them slide into political purity. I mean, some of them might distort the truth in some ways. On the other hand, on the right, you're not talking about people who basically have a vision of a better society. You're talking about people who basically want to justify inequality. You're talking about people who are justifying racism. You're talking about people who are justifying a racial violence and state violence. You're talking about people who basically want and justify the destruction of the environment. I mean, you're talking about a death machine. So these are very different groups. So let's begin, first of all, with where they start from in order to begin to understand that this is a false equivalence to say that the left lies and the right lies. I mean, I think that's just nonsense. I think the other side of this, that what is nonsense is the question. The other side of this is, is that uh, let's look at who has the power in this country. I mean, think about the president's comment about Antifa. I mean, is he serious? Does he really believe that hundreds of thousands of people mobilizing in the streets of country of, of over 40 cities in, in the United States is organized by Antifa? I mean, that borders on believing in the virgin birth, uh, you know, and in angels. Uh, you know, sorry, I don't, I don't mean to offend evangelicals here, but, but it, at, at the same time, I mean, these are such distortions of the truth that we really have to start asking ourselves, you know, what is being defended here? What's the root of this problem outside of the question of whether the truth is being maligned? Of course the truth is being maligned, but the truth is always maligned for a particular purpose so that when you ask me why would they engage in willful ignorance, this is a, there's, there's two kinds of ignorances, it seems to me. There's, there's the ignorance of just not knowing, and then there's a the willful ignorance, which is, racist, which is basically the refusal to know so that you can reproduce your own particular interests. And in this case, in the interest of power. One of the, things, one of the things that's been really been bugging me about the coverage of the protests against the police violence that ended up killing George Floyd is that 
Some who are supporting the cops will just say, hey, look, it's just a few bad apples. And then when it comes to the looters, who might just be a few bad apples, those looters completely undermine the entire movement against police violence. The focus in the media and much of the public discussion and debate is now on the looting without deeper conversations and analysis on racial violence imposed by the police. Why does... why does no, that's very eloquent and, and, of course, very smart. And, and, I, and I think there are three issues here. Okay. I mean, one, if we're going to talk about looting, let's put it in a context that gives the term some substance. And what that means is that you have corporations, you, know, you have banks, you have, you have hedge funds, you have policies that basically loot from the American public and basically push uh, whatever, whatever funds we have upward into the hands of relatively few people. That's real looting. If you want to look at the financial crisis of, of 2008, that's looting. You know, we basically cheated people out of their homes. Uh, we gave them faults. The banks gave them faults of mortgages, or, and, and it goes on and on. Or we do have tax breaks, $1.5 trillion that go to the rich. We have a pandemic bill that basically serves billionaires and millionaires and does almost nothing for small business owners. That's looting. That, if we're going to talk about looting, that's looting. Secondly, looting is code. It's code for basically a form of, of, of racism. When we talk about looters we're, in, in the media, what we're talking about generally are poor people who are stealing televisions from Target. That's, I mean, that's basically what's going on here. There's a refusal to really think through what that term means. Thirdly, the tactic is a diversion. To talk about looting and not talk about the conditions that produce it is to miss the point. Now, fourthly, it seems to me there's another argument, and that argument is that there are many people basically who are involved in the protest who are nonviolent and are saying, hey, look, you know, this is a diversion. We don't support this, and we, got to, we have to think through how we're going to handle this, while at the same time not condemning everybody who doesn't involve, get involved in this sort of thing. I mean, we have to talk about it not simply as a moral issue, but as a strategic issue. It's not beneficial. It's just not beneficial. It seems to me, because it offers too many opportunities for a law and order president to emerge beating his chest and to do a, a photo op by gassing people beforehand and then walking of all places to a church and of all things holding up a Bible. I mean, Donald Trump holding up a Bible uh, and, and then talking about how he, he really likes protesters and, and loves black people. So it, 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 it seems to me that the, these terms, when they get seized upon so quickly, especially by the mainstream press, they're really supporting, uh, to, to say the very least, the kind of law and order that they think they're reacting against. We were talking to Ariella Aisha Azale yesterday about her book, Potential Histories, Unlearning uh, Imperialism. And she was talking about how, for instance, Palestine in 1947, uh, uh, Arabs and Jews were working together trying to find a, p a peaceful solution. And that was overrun by imperialism. So she said, we need to go back to those moments. We have to remember those moments in time. You write the people running into sh stores, taking TVs are labeled looters when in fact, as James Baldwin once said, captive populations don't loot hedge fund managers, bankers, pharmaceutical executives, big corporations, and the rest of the ultra-rich are the real looters. I look, look, heard, let's I, be realistic here. I, I wanna, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's one thing that has to be said. Okay. If we're going to talk about looting as a destruction of property and not talk about looting as a destruction of human life, right. we're missing the point. And it seems to me that if you want to talk about looting, think about the pharmaceutical companies in the last five years. And think about how many people died 
because they purposely flooded the market with opioids, knowing that those drugs would kill people, but at, and at the same time did it and raked in millions and millions of dollars. That's looting. Were they put in jail? Were they described as criminals? Uh, no, not really. I mean, if we want to talk about, let's put this in a context that makes sense. And, and I heard this, the comment that you made, that you quote of James Baldwin, I heard this attributed on, by a TV reporter in the last week who is trying to represent this point of view. I heard this attributed to, quote, young people today. How dependent is the history of racial violence on the erasing of voices and movements against police violence that have risen up in the past, just like we see the erasing of the stories against imperialism that happened, for instance, back in 1947 Palestine? I mean, we're not just talking about the the erasure of oppressive events that that basically we should learn from in terms of trying to understand the genesis and the origins. We're talking about the erasure and, and the reconfiguration of historical memory in general. I mean, you live in a culture of immediacy. You live in a culture for which history is the enemy. You know, you live in a culture in which historical memory seems like a term that belongs in some sort of academic textbook and is not really part of of the pedagogical practices that are necessary for people to become critically engaged citizens. I mean, we're talking here not simply about the crisis of history. We're talking about the crisis of agency. And it seems to me that people cannot be agents if they don't have a sense of history. They cannot be agents if they don't understand the connections between what's going on now and what's happened in the past. If you can't connect the kind of violence that's going in the streets right now to 1968, if you can't connect that to Jim Crow, if you can't connect that to the rise of capital punishment in the United States, if you can't connect that to the origins of slavery, if you can't connect that to the genocide waged against Native Americans, you don't get it. You don't have an, an understanding. All you can hear is a president stand in front of a church making a phony speech about how we need law and order without any sense of how that term has been used basically as a weapon to weaponize language and to basically kill people. You write that under the Trump regime, people of color are thugs, relegated to zones of social abandonment, lacking human rights and unknowable as lives worthy of value. Is that knowing that their lives are unknowable as lives worthy of value, is that simply a mechanism of neoliberalism, capitalism, imperialism to have a labor force who are viewed as lacking value so others can benefit from their poorly rewarded work? Is that just the way that capitalism works? Go back and listen to the speeches of Malcolm X if you want to answer that question, if you really want an answer to that question. I mean, it it, it seems to me that one of the things that capitalism does is it basically says that whatever strengths working class people have, whatever strengths black people have, whatever strengths brown people have, whatever strengths the oppressed have, are really not strengths, they're deficits. And they should be ashamed that basically their lives are worthless, that basically if they're not good consumers, they have no identity. Their histories don't matter. The schools attempt to eliminate those history. Arizona attempted to wipe out in the textbooks the history of, of Mexican-American families uh, for their children. So it, it, it seems to me that when you undermine the possibility for people to speak, to be voiceless is to be powerless. When you undermine and eliminate the narratives that give people a sense of their histories, that's a form of depoliticization. It's not just an attack on their self-esteem. I mean, it's a way of refiguring history in the way so as to suggest that the only people worthy of history are white people. The only people worthy of history are the rich. 
The only people worthy of history are the Donald Trumps. The only heroes we have today are basically the head of tech companies, the CEOs. So it, it seems to me that this crisis of historical memory is also about the crisis of agency, and it's also fundamentally about the crisis of politics and democracy. And do we need to learn those histories? Absolutely. Do we need, in, in some fundamental way, to be able to define ourselves so as to be able to think through who we are and what our strengths are? I have a term for that. Uh, because, you know, as a working class kid, I was defined by my deficits. Oh, you're too emotional. You're, you know, you're, you're too kinetic. Uh, you're too passionate and that kind of nonsense. And I called it flipping the script. And what that means is that at some point I recognized that the things that I was told to emulate in middle class and ruling class values were really despicable. And once I was able to flip that script, I understood that I came from a neighborhood where there was enormous sense of solidarity among working class kids, that we hung together, that we had a sense of ethical responsibility. Uh, and there were all kinds of things that basically gave us a sense of community. And so I think the key here is how do you flip the script against those kinds of dominant historical narratives? And if you haven't figured out why Henry is one of my very favorite guests on the show so far during our conversation, then you're not listening. We are speaking with cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the Board of Directors for Truth Out, Henry A. Giraud. You can find out more about Henry at his website, Henry A. Giraud. Follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giraud. You write, no one talks about the roots of these problems, and I do not simply mean their origins in slavery, a culture of lynching, and a deeply ingrained institutional racism, however crucial these events are. I am talking about the roots of a fascist politics in which money counts more than people and some people count more than others. So we heard all of these people on the right being very concerned about the cure for the coronavirus might be worse than the disease. The actual shutting down of the economy might be worse than the actual pandemic. They wanted to put profits before people instead of people before profits. Does putting the economy before the people, is that the definition of fascism? You know, Adorno, maybe it was a Horkheimer. Adorno, and it was Horkheimer. Horkheimer once said that, the mem- you know, uh, the, uh, Max Horkheimer was a member of the Frankfurt School. You know, when, when he was studying fascism, he had a great line, Chuck. He said, you know, if you don't want to talk about capitalism, you can't talk about fascism. And I, and I think he's absolutely right. Because I, it, it, it seems to me that, you know, what we've seen in the evolution of capitalism over the last 40 years, particularly since the, the, the election of Ronald Reagan, what we have seen is that it's become more severe, it's become more extreme, it's become more savage, and it's become more cruel. And I say that because what that basically means is it can no longer defend itself. It can no longer say, we're about social mobility, we're about trickle-down economics, we're going to raise, rise people up from the bottom to the top. Those things are just lies and they're gone. So now it's turned to something else. It says the real problems, of course, are about black people. The real problems about people, you know, mobilizing in the streets. I don't use the word riots. I say rebellions. People are rebelling in the street, but they don't use that term. The real problem is that we've defunded education. The real problem is that people are suffering because they're in debt and afraid to, to, to access health care because they're afraid that they, they, they won't be able to uh, pay back what the, what the fees are. People, are. people are dying because they don't have enough food. People are dying because the economy has been financialized and there are no productive jobs anymore. People are dying because one in four people in America don't have jobs right now. People are dying because 45% of those jobs won't come back. 
I mean, so it seems to me when you close down the future in the name of an economic system, and then in the face of the misery it produces, say that the economy is worth some people dying, what you see is a neoliberal fascism that actually is tying itself to the logic of genocide. I mean, think about what was said in the pandemic about older people. Oh, they, 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 you know, they, they can go. We don't need them. Their lives are expendable. What really matters is keeping the economy alive. That is a false choice. And it's not to say the economy doesn't matter. It says that if you had a democratic socialist government that basically took half the funds they they put in the military and provide people with the funds that they need to survive and more, while at the same time investing in social in health, investing in schools, and investing in public goods, while at the same time doing everything you can to address this vaccine, there is no dichotomy. The economy will come back. People will work. You'll have national health care. You'll be able to address the problems that you have. So the notion that the economy is more important than human life is really an argument for a form of neoliberal fascism. That's a false argument. The other side of this is that it's now become so brutalized and so cruel and so obvious and so visible that it makes no apologies for actually claiming that some people should die so that the GN, the G, whatever it is, the gross national product can go up in the stock market, uh, can revive itself. Can you imagine? The media and the government at the beginning of the response here in the U.S. kept saying we are all in this together and a repeated call for uh, uh, unity in this time of crisis under the virus. Has that contradiction been revealed as unsustainable? Uh, it's such a false language. You know, I remember riding down the highway and there was a big billboard put out by General Electric. It said, pick up the trash. We're all in this together. Well, actually, no, I'm afraid we're not all in this together. I can't some, believe that, Henry. That is outstanding. That is amazing. That is such some, hubris. Some people have power and contribute in an enormously inordinate way to destroying the environment. My putting my, my, my trash in the green bin is not the same as corporations dumping millions of pollutants in, into, into the waterways, crippling kids, putting lead in the water in Flint and other cities, having schools where there are cockroaches running around and kids are being exposed to that, cutting back on food stamps so that people basically uh, get sick and don't have access to health care. I'm sorry. You know, when you really want to talk about three families in the United States controlling as much as 50% of the bottom of the population in wealth, hence and in power, don't, don't, don't say that we're all in this together. We're not all, all in this together. Some of us are victims. Some of us are in this because we have no choice. Some of us don't have the, have the, have the, the capabilities or the possibilities because we're struggling to survive to even address those problems. So that's a false unity that is as bad as the neoliberal argument that the only responsibility one has is to oneself and, and that the only way in which one can address any problem is to blame oneself. It's, it's, just a, it's just a horrendously cruel and, it seems to me, false argument. It's a very false argument. And you write that neoliberal capitalism is the underlying pandemic feeding the current global shortage of hospitals, medical supplies, beds, and robust social welfare provisions, and increasingly an indifference to human life. Here in Chicago, right in my neighborhood, there was a completely closed-down hospital that they started tearing down at the beginning of the coronavirus. Why is the question of why there is a global shortage of hospitals, medical supplies, beds, and social welfare 
not being asked that you would think that that would be the conversation on the very first day of them saying, hey, we have a shortage of uh, beds. You'd think, well, why do we have a shortage of beds? Because we have a shortage of hospitals. Why do we have a shortage of hospitals? Because there was a political choice made to close down health facilities that were needed. Why is that question not being investigated in any way? It's not being investigated, Chuck, because it's too dangerous. Because it's, it's, it's a question that exposes the very heart of a savage kind of capitalism, which believes that the market should control and govern all of social life, and that therefore the social contract is a nemesis, that democracy is the enemy, that public goods basically should not support be supported, that people who get anything in terms of the public good are somehow moochers, are somehow greedy and stupid and, and really don't deserve that, that we all have to sort of pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. And if we want good health care, we have to fight for it alone and prove that we're worthy of it. It's such a savage. I mean, this is such a savage argument. I mean, this hatred of the social contract, this hatred. Remember now, this hatred of equality translates into a massive endorsement of inequality. This hatred of compassion translates into a culture of enormous cruelty. This, this refusal to deal with the language that supports community and democracy translates into a language of divisiveness. This othering people because of their color, because of their class, because of their race, because of their sexual orientation translates into the language of hate. And the language of hate translates into the language of violence. But Henry, we, we got lower taxes out of the whole deal, right? So this worked out perfectly, right? So why don't we make that connection to the fact that it was this huge anti-tax movement starting in the ni- in 1980, and if not beforehand, uh, that has led to this crisis of neoliberalism? I mean, that, that crisis emerged out of the presupposition that it's better to protect your own interests and to, and to see government as the enemy than basically to be able to support a public good in which everybody benefits. That's where that came from. I mean, just as Thatcher, I mean, you know, just as Thatcher said, you know, there's no such thing as society. There are only individuals and government. And of course, Reagan said, you know, Reagan said, you know, government is really the enemy. I mean, when Reagan and Thatcher got married, they produced something awful. And what, what they basically produced was an economic system that was really a death machine. It benefited very few people. It hated the social contract. It undermined democracy. And it tore this country apart. And it caused a massive amount of inequality, suffering, and access to goods that everybody should have. To what degree did we choose that, Henry? I think that people choose it to the degree to which they be, they be, they, they're led to believe that the, 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 the vision of the good society is basically about the vision of self-interest. And I, and, I, and I don't blame people for believing that. I, what I blame are the, are, the, are the disimagination machines that spread that narrative endlessly through the logic of consumerism, reality TV, game shows, the dismantling of the public good. Remember, we have been fighting against this ideology since the late 1970s. And the damage that it has done uh, now we're seeing it explode among young people who are the only hope I think we really have, who are multicultural, who are multi- have multiple identities, you know, who are in the streets and are saying, hey, look, the future, this, this ideology has canceled out the future. We don't believe it anymore. Because we have seen what it does to us. We have seen what it does to older people, to poor people, to black people, to brown people. The evidence is there. And I, and I think that what we, when we look back, 
what we're going to be able to say, I believe, in light of that wonderful question you, you asked, which I think is really crucial, and that is we saw the failure of education. We just saw the failure of American education. It happened in California. All of a sudden, people are saying, you know, we, we can no longer raise taxes to a certain limit. The school systems plummeted. We saw it in the failure to take equality seriously, producing massive degrees of human suffering and misery around inequality. And then we saw the government taken, completely taken over by the financial interest. We no longer have, we no longer have a national political government. We have a corporate government. Let's be realistic. And that, that corporate government does everything it can to constantly reinforce, reproduce, and sustain its own power and logic, which is at odds with 90% of the population. You're right. The many people who are and will die as a result of reckless policies towards coronavirus will be those traditionally viewed as disposable under the reign of neoliberalism. These include the elderly, the destitute, poor people of color, undocumented immigrants, and people with disabilities, not to mention the frontline medical workers who lack the equipment they need to be safe as they treat the elderly, sick, and dangerously ill. We're all calling these people essential workers, whether they're grocery store workers or EMTs now. How can essential workers be disposable under neoliberalism? Does that yet again show another fissure in neoliberalism and how it does? Absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think that what this pandemic crisis has done, among other things, just as, the, just as the, the rebellions that are taking place in the streets all over the country right now, I mean, what it's made clear is that, I'm sorry, you know, these populations are essential to how the country runs. That all of a sudden, the heroes are not the bankers, the heroes are not the hedge, hedge fund managers. Nobody's talking about Bill Gates as a hero right now. Give me a break. Jamie Dimon, see you later. I mean, the real heroes are the people who every day go out and put their lives on the line. The people who make the electricity work, the people who nurture the buildings, the people who provide the food, you know, the people who do the jobs that make the, uh, this country and the rest of the, the societies all over the, all over the world function. And I think we're discovering that. And to me, that's a sign of hope, because it seems to me that let's let's talk about our priorities. What do we want to what do we want to invest in? Do we want to invest in the upper one tenth of one percent and shift all our wealth, money, interest, policies? Uh, and power to those people? Or do we want to now ask ourselves the question, you know, if we need health care, what should we do? Uh, if, if we need food, what should we do? If we need security for our children, what should we do? What does it mean to hold back uh, a, a government that basically endorses the police to be thugs and to, be, and to brutalize black and brown populations? What should we do? So it seems to me a whole range of questions that have come out of this fissure are enormously important about what kind of society we now, we now want to envision in light of both of these, these pandemics, these three pandemics we're seeing. There had already been an epidemic of loneliness and depression sweeping the United right. States and the UK. What impact do you think not only neoliberalism's language, as you call it, uh, language of isolation, dep deprivation, human suffering and death, but its outcomes of those very things has on the ability of the US or UK public to emotionally and psychologically deal with quarantine? What impact does neoliberalism have? I think it makes it, yeah. I think it, makes it very difficult. I, I mean, loneliness, loneliness and social atomization if I can put it this way, echoing Hannah Harant, is a form of terrorism. It's a form of terrorism. When you separate people, you know, when you break down communities, when you force people to simply think about surviving and nothing else, 
when you say the language of compassion is a disease, when you say that the very notion of community is something that we have to break up and destroy uh, any solidarity in the interest of, 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 of a, you know, pushing a particular neoliberal ideology, it seems to me that that's really horrendous. And, and people suffer from that. I mean, we're social beings. You know, we need to function in a way that allows us to work together, to be cooperative. We need a society of shared responsibilities, not a society based on shared fears. And that's exactly what we have, a society based on divisiveness, self-interest, shared fears. It doesn't work. I mean, it produces anxiety. It produces precarity. It produces fear. It produces loneliness. But it also produces something else. It produces a hatred for other people. And it, and, it, and it seems to me that it, it's, it's a terrible, dangerous uh, ideology that really fosters an norm of collective fascism. So, Henry, you know, a lot of people are saying that, well, if we just elect Joe Biden, everything's going to get better. Sure, it'll get better. But is Joe Biden the answer to all of the problems that we're having, whether it's coronavirus or racial violence? Uh, I mean, look, uh, there, I have two positions on this. The first is there's, there's what I call the immediate reforms, and then there's what I call absolutely long-term change. In the most immediate sense, we've got to get rid of Donald Trump. He's dangerous. He's a fascist. He, he's one, as my friend Noam Chomsky has argued, he's one of the most dangerous people in the world right now. We have to get rid of him. Is Joe Biden the answer? Absolutely not, because Joe Biden is part of a Democratic Party that basically helped to produce people like Trump. We need a third party. We have to work. Capitalism and democracy, uh, as I've said before in this program, are not the same thing. We don't need reform. We need change. We need massive transformative change. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but we have to be able to envision a society that is not simply a reform of this society, but is entirely different. And I think it's happening. I mean, people, I mean look what Bernie Sanders did. All of a sudden, he, you know, he invented the term socialism and made it legitimate. I mean, we're talking about policies that are basically socialist policies. I mean, so it seems to me that, no, Biden, oh, absolutely not. Uh, Biden is a member of the establishment. Biden is Hillary Clinton light. Uh, we don't need that. What we need if Biden gets in is to really push the limits of that kind of politics so that we can refigure radical change rather than simply reform. And that's what we were arguing. We had, uh, geez, was it Francis Moore LePay? I can't remember who was on the show who was talking about this uh, back in 2008, in November, December 2008. She was talking about how we need to push the Barack Obama administration to make certain that it lives up to the ideals that a lot of the anti-war activists had that had helped him get into office. And then immediately upon getting into office, you heard Democrats from everywhere saying, you cannot push him too far to the left or he'll be a one one-term president. What happened? How can we make certain that we do have the people who are pressuring people like Joe Biden if they do get into office to make certain that they do the things we want them to do instead of doing as Barack Obama did, which was a race to the center? I think what you do is you go in the streets. I think that you're going to put a stop to all of this. And I don't think that's a call for violence. I think that basically it's a call for new strategies that unite different groups in ways that shut the country down. We've got to shut down the power that, that dominates this country. You want to shut it down? Go for their pocketbooks. Occupy mass civil dis disobedience and do what Martin Luther King did. You know, be selective. 
shut down different things in this country at different times. Use those opportunities to educate people. But at the same time, we've got to paralyze the system. The system has to be stopped. And it's not going to be stopped through elections that are a joke. It's not going to happen that way. We need massive education. We need a unified mass movement. And we need strategies that work, that are effective, that all of a sudden can, that can translate into enormous attention and can make the country, the machinery come to a halt, uh, if temporarily at times, just so we can, we can make it clear that we cannot go on like this anymore. So what is our future if once we are allowed to go back outside, if we go back to normal? The future is not inventing a future that mimics the present. The future is fighting collectively. The future is taking advantage of the energies of young people and bringing it together. The future is about getting rid of the fractions that we see on the left. The future is to talk about a society that is just, equitable, and makes uh, and, is, and is serious about democratic participation and, and, and basically economic equality and social justice. We need a new language, Chuck. We need a new language. We need educational systems that produce it, imagination, radical imagination machines. We need an alternative media. But we need a mass movement that takes the question of education and the question of collective struggle, sees them as inseparable. We have been speaking with cultural critic, writer, university professor, journalist, and a member of the board of directors for Truth Out, Henry A. Giro. Find out more about Henry at his website, henryagiro.com. Follow Henry on Twitter at Henry Giro. Our final question for you, the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response, Henry, is our guests on last Monday's show, a couple weeks ago, argued that it is inevitable that neoliberalism will fail under the virus. Can no. neoliberalism fail as long as the rich are getting ev ever more rich off of neoliberalism? There, there's, neoliberalism, there's no guarantee that anything will fail unless people, motive, unless people wake up and become aware to a process of both critical understanding and critical action about what it means to come together to be able to invent a future that doesn't reproduce the present. So it seems to me that's, a, that's an enormously political question because it, it operates off the assumption that we need a new language, we need new agents, we need a new vision, and we need new possibilities. God, I love Henry. Henry, I love talking to you. You're like absolutely one of my very, very favorite guests. Thank you oh, so so much fine. for being back on our uh, show again. Uh, Henry was last on back in July of last year. You can find all of our interviews with Henry at our website. Just search on his name, G-I-R-O-U-X. Thanks again for being on, Henry. Really, really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chuck. Thank you. All right, take bye care. Bye-bye. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is Hell. I'm your Bitter, Blind, Broke, Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. You can find out more about This Is Hell at thisishell.com. You can follow This Is Hell on Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. And at all those places, you can send us your answer to this week's question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, Wednesday, This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support where you can get one right now. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, uh, what you got on your face? <laughs> what you got on your face? <laughs> I had a really uh, homeless beard on my face, but that's gone, and now I'm back to stubble. So 
You can leave your answer again to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But you have to send your response by end of show Thursday following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth when we will announce this week's winner. Uh, Alex will have your answers to this week's question from hell starting at the beginning of tomorrow's show. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show. Uh, we're talking about with Sarah Beth Kaufman about her book, American Roulette, The Social Logic of Death Penalty Sentencing Trials. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted at about 2 p.m. Chicago time. To hear some of your answers to this week's question from hell is, what's on your face? What's that on your face? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, you know, I was over here yesterday in uh, helping Pete prepare in case of looting. Uh, were you also helping yourself to a beer? I was doing that, too, but it was very, uh, very difficult work to be taking hundreds of bottles of liquor and putting them elsewhere so people can't get them when they come into the place. And uh, so February wants to know a little bit of an update uh, Update as far as our neighborhood is going. Yesterday I was saying that I doubt people were going to be looting up here because who wants off-brand luggage, aluminum cookware, and uh, uh, VCR from Sorny, you know? Give, like, it, give it a second. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, no, none has come up here yet, but uh, the windows over at the KFC, the Halal KFC over at Western and Pratt, uh, somebody threw a rock through one of the windows there. Somebody threw a rock through a jewelry store down the street here through a window. But no looting, just a little bit of rock throwing. So just wanted to give everybody a little bit of an update from the neighborhood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex and thanks to Henry, our guest today. <sighs> your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.